In January, the man described as Britain's most prolific and horrific rapist was unmasked. Reynard Senega drugged, raped and sexually assaulted dozens of young men at his tiny flat in Manchester city centre and he filmed each of his sick crimes on his mobile phones. So how did this slight, unremarkable-looking international student carry out his crimes and how did he get away with it for so long? I think had he not been a narcissist and a psychopath, anybody else faced with such damning evidence would have... Would have admitted to what they've done. I'm Beth Abbott, a reporter at the Manchester Evening News, and for the past 18 months I've been following Seneca's case through four trials at Manchester Crown Court. Some of the jurors physically cried during that first trial. In this exclusive one-off podcast, I'll talk to the detectives at the forefront of this investigation and discuss the facts heard in four Crown Court trials before Seneca was jailed for life. He's offended with impunity for a decade. He's now convinced himself that either he is innocent because he's, he's done it for so long or the fact that it doesn't matter because he's, he's got what he's wanted for so long. We'll find out how Senega stalked the streets of Manchester hunting for victims and how he perfected his method so he could bring back hundreds of men to his city centre flat. He has a, a perception of their vulnerability and he, and he preys on them so he goes out looking for them and he knows who to pick, the ones that are on their own. He knows that, you know, how drunk they need to be and how they're behaving on the street. Princess Street is one of the busiest main roads in Manchester at any time of the day or night. It stretches less than a mile through the city centre, starting at Albert Square, outside the Town Hall, and passing St Peter's Square and its major tram stop, past Chinatown and the Gay Village up towards the River Medlock and the Rochdale Canal, before reaching the Mancunian Way. Senega lived near the River Medlock, end of Princess Street, at a place called Montana House. Starting at the foot of Canal Street, by the New Union, it takes around three minutes to walk the short stretch along Princess Street to where Senega lived. This was a route he would walk frequently, as he stalked the city looking for victims. The layout of Montana House, where Senega lives, suggests that the rapist had a bird's eye view of the street below. He had only to look out of his living room window to see the crowds of people below, including the drunk, vulnerable, lone men he targeted. All the men at the centre of this story were heavily intoxicated. A couple had even taken drugs. Some had been kicked out of nightclubs. Others had lost their friends or had become lost because they didn't know the city. One was waiting for his girlfriend to emerge from a subterranean nightclub. It would be at this point, Senega, a nerdy, youthful-looking, skinny young man, would strike. He would tell victims they could wait for friends at his place, or charge the phone there, or simply come back for a quick drink. In their drunken state, they agreed. Of course, they had no idea of the horrific plans this smiley, chatty PhD student had in mind. As Detective Constable Dorothy Orr explains, the victim's only mistake was in being too trusting. Please tell me or let people know that these lads haven't behaved any differently than all the other, obviously you can't generalise, but most of that age range in Manchester at that time because it's just... And, it, and don't you think they keep themselves safe, but it, enough? Yeah. But it was a safe place as well, doesn't it? It, it is. It's, 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 it's bubbling, it's, you know, it's, it's bright, it's welcoming, you've got... you know. So many businesses are still open at the night time, so you're not talking about a dark, secluded alleyway that you know they've been picked up on or anything. 
That's Detective Inspector Zahir Ali. He led a team of specialist officers during the investigation into Senega. Manchester folk are naturally friendly folk. You know, they'll get into a conversation with anybody, they'll chat on the street. It's not unusual. It's him that's the the odd one, not them doing something particularly odd. But that is an important factor, though. He is a one-off. You know, and I mentioned earlier on to the number of rapes I've investigated in a number of years. Never known anything like this. And again, I've researched in terms of other serial rapists, and he is, from what I've seen, the the biggest male serial rapist anywhere ever. Um, and I suspect. I mean, it obviously depends on what happens after when it goes to the media, how many people report. It could be the biggest serial ever. Uh, is it, he is a predator. At the end of the day, he's a, a predator. He's a one-off. So you it's watch, nothing to do with Manchester, is it? It's no, you watch him and yeah. he, he is a predator. So you, you see him and he's clearly, like you said, he's got this pattern. You know, he'll go out and he... I mean, p- these lads are only vulnerable usually because of the, the amount of drink they've had, aren't they? But he has a way of noticing vulnerability which is how most rapes happen isn't it so they will literally spy be it male or female you know and how much time to drink they're a little not quite thinking straight so he has a, a perception of their vulnerability and he and he preys on them so he goes out looking for them and he knows who to pick the ones that are on their own he knows that you know how drunk they need to be and how they're behaving on the street and how friendly they are and so it's him it's not and then a lot of them have I mean, they've even said, "What did I do wrong?" You know what? They, they, they beat themselves up about going back to the flat. I wouldn't ever do that normally. I won't go to a strange man's flat. Well, they haven't. They've gone to another student flat in their mind. You know, it's not like they've gone off with some bloke. Because you'll notice most of them say they think he's in his early twenties, and although he doesn't look that now, he does. Right at the very beginning, he, he looked an awful lot younger. When Seneca persuaded his victims to follow him back to his flat. He would typically offer them a drink, sometimes a shot of whiskey, sometimes just a glass of water. Prosecutors say these drinks were spiked with the illegal drug GHB or GBL, substances which are easily available on the streets of Manchester and on the dark web. This drug renders men unconscious, sometimes to the point of coma, and has a muscle relaxing effect which allowed Seneca to rape his victims multiple times without their knowledge. He raped 44 men this way, and sexually assaulted a further four, while they were all completely unconscious on the floor of his apartment. The crimes against these 48 men has led Senega to be jailed for life. He must serve at least 30 years behind bars before he is considered for release by the parole board. However, the judge who sent him to prison, her honour Judge Goddard QC, said, In my judgement, you are a highly dangerous, cunning and deceitful individual who will never be safe to be released. You know, this is a unique case. We do believe Reynard Senaga is the UK's most prolific rapist and I never dreamt it would ever be possible to come across an individual who's committed such horrific offending over such a period of time. This is Greater Manchester Police's lead on specialist crime, Assistant Chief Constable Mabs Hussein. Here, he explains why prosecutors, detectives and police are convinced that Senaga used GHB to render his victims unconscious. Absolutely. It's not conclusive. We haven't been able to prove it beyond doubt. 
but our um, investigation and our working assumptions on this investigation have been that he's managed to incapacitate young men through the use of a drug. We believe and strongly suspect it to be a drug similar to GHB or GHB itself. We have done a lot of investigation to try and identify the source of where he may have purchased it from. You know, we have checked his bank accounts, financial transactions and uh, internet history, but we've been able, unable to source that. We do know GHB is a drug that's used, and in particular by those individuals who want to commit sexual offences against innocent men or women. We will work tirelessly to ensure that where we have the opportunity to take it off the street and convict individuals, we do, but we do need the public's help. The public will know where GHB is being sold, and what I'd encourage people to do is, if they have any information, is to contact the police, and we will act upon it. It seems to us that the, that the behaviour of the victims is such that it can only be attributed to um, um, some substance over and above alcohol. This is Ian Rushton. He's the Crown Prosecution Service's Deputy Chief Prosecutor. He says he's never seen a case like this in his 30 years as a prosecutor. You know, many of us have had too, too many drinks, but we're not rendered so incapable to the extent that the victims in this case were quite obviously uh, overcome. Um, as I say, many of the men, vast majority of the men, didn't know what had happened, so didn't seek any medical intervention, any examination uh, um, at the time. Um, so uh, that route of, of possible uh, evidential material uh, was, was not there for us. But I think you know, the obvious inference that we invited jury to take and they um, have accepted is that um, Sonaga's modus operandi involved the um, spiking of a drink um, and the, the awful consequences that followed from that. Throughout Sonaga's trials, jurors heard evidence from a drug expert who explained the effects of the drugs GHB and GBL, collectively known as G. Both have the effect of lowering inhibitions and relaxing the body and experts say this could mean victims wouldn't necessarily realise they had been raped. Dr Simon Elliott explained that G can lead to unconsciousness for several hours, even in minute doses, and often leaves users with anterograde amnesia. That means they're unable to recall the recent past, even though memories prior to an event may remain intact. During one of the trials, he said, The degree of sedation can vary from a little bit sleepy to complete coma or unconsciousness. Coma is a common factor of GHB. If someone takes too much, they can go into an actual coma, as if they are clinically anaesthetised. But it wasn't just the evidence from experts that convinced four juries that Senega poisoned his victims with a date-rape drug. They could see for themselves how these men were in an uninterruptible state of unconsciousness, because Senega filmed his crimes on two iPhones. These films, which were graphic in their detail, were shown to jurors in four trials. They were not shown to anybody else, and court staff were at great pains to ensure they couldn't be viewed from the press bench or the public gallery. Here's D.I. Ali again, speaking ahead of Senega's fourth trial. I don't believe he's got a mental health condition. I don't think he's, he's suffering from mental health. What I do believe is he's a, a psychopath to the point of where he's, he's convinced himself what he's doing is, is not wrong, and he's lived this double life for 10 years where he's, you know, to his friends, masquerading as um, 
almost a Casanova can go out and, and, and get, you know, get a day or pull men for sex anytime he wants. And he's believed that, that story, that, that narrative that he's given to everyone. Which is why I'm doing that first police interview, the account that he's given is, even though he was presented and told that we have an evidence and videos of these men asleep, clearly snoring, and in fact, at the first trial, he's given evidence as well. It's all the time he has given evidence at trial. And it's, and you being there, you can hear these men snoring, you can tell they're not moving, and yet he's there and he's saying, no, they're not snoring, they're breathing. And it just shows just how oblivious he is to the truth of what's down in front of him. And I think had he not been a narcissist, and a psychopath, anybody else faced with such damning evidence would have would have admitted to what they've done. But part of the, the, the power of bringing the victims back and watching the videos, and I think that's what the gratification is getting out of it. Because otherwise, I'm sure he knows, having gone through certainly three trials and now going for the fourth trial, that it's very small likelihood of him not being found guilty so you, you've got to look at what is there in for him he's always got life sentences and it can only be just that it's that control element of, of a psychopath one piece of evidence which appears to show the delusional personality that di ali talks about came out during senega's third trial in the hours after senega raped one of his victims he took to whatsapp to talk to his friends about the sexual encounter with this man the messages are astonishing Black magic, yeah. Ray makes drink potion of gay love. I want the formula. Take a sip of my secret poison and I'll make you fall in love. One drop should be enough. Prosecutor Ian Simkin, who acted for the Crown Prosecution Service in all four trials, described these messages as breathtaking. He told a jury, he is admitting what he is doing. He's boasting about it. It's breathtaking that not only is he committing these offences and filming these offences, He's boasting about these offences. In another message, sent to friends after he raped a man in the early hours of New Year's Day, Senega said, I didn't get my New Year kiss, but I've had my first sex in 2015 already. I met him in the factory next to my building, straight, 22, playing football. He was straight in 2014. 2015 is his breakthrough to the gay world. This pattern of messaging continued. And later that month, Senega again spoke to friends about another one of the men he had raped. During this conversation, Senega describes how his victim's girlfriend had called police and reported him missing overnight. His friend tells him, Run, darling, run. They will come after you. Later in the chat, another friend asks if Senega met the student on Grinder, And when Senega sends him a picture, he says, Finally, I can see the inside of Ray's room. I was always forbidden to go behind the magic door. You were always screaming, no, it's too messy. Then we were joking, male dead body were piling under the bed. In the context of his offending, it seems incredible that Senega should joke with his friends about sexual encounters. It was all part of what D.I. Ali describes as Senega's double life. Throughout his trials at Manchester Crown Court, Senega appeared pretty emotionless. He would look down and take notes as his victims spoke about their experiences and as expert witnesses spoke about the technicalities of the case. When the videos showing him raping and sexually assaulting men were played to jurors, he didn't flinch. He didn't even appear embarrassed. Jurors had to view hours and hours of this footage, which was so disturbing that they've been told they'll never have to serve on a jury again. Despite all this, at times, Senegra appeared to be enjoying the trial process. 
As I sat on the press bench during three of his trials at the Crown Court, I saw him smile at the judge, try and engage barristers in conversation, and occasionally giggle while giving evidence. It was a point touched on by Judge Goddard as she sentenced him to life. She told him, Again, during this trial, you have shown not a jot of remorse for your actions, and again, you seem to actually be enjoying the trial process. Your actions show you are a dangerous, deeply disturbed and perverted individual with no sense of reality. Here, DC Orr describes Sonega's lack of emotion while giving evidence in court. He is emotionless, absolutely emotionless. So, I mean, obviously he's seen the videos before, so he's not seen them for the first time. And when he re-watches them, and obviously it's uncomfortable when, you know, sort of in that environment when, Mm. I mean, I wouldn't want somebody watching you know, you on video, but he doesn't seem to have any sort of reactions. There's just no reaction whatsoever. He's very upbeat, very smiley at times. He, he chats to the prison officers, tries to engage with the barristers to have a bit of a joke with them, like just before court starts and things like that. Um, I think the only time I've shown it, I've seen him show emotions because he was he actually gave evidence in the first trial, and I think he. Th- he got up to give evidence and I think he thought he could outwit the barristers and when he didn't and got just like anybody under cross-examination might get into a bit of a a fluster he he got a little angry and a little sort of you know defensive but apart from that he just seems quite remorseless he stares dead ahead you look at the judge in the eye he has this it's a sinister smirk it's not an no, no. it is a sinister smirk that he has on, and it just does, does not go away. So it's, it goes back to that element of where he's convinced himself. He has like this self-importance. Yeah. Like he feels he's important. Yeah. Like it gives him yeah. some sort of kudos being in there. He makes yeah. notes all the way through. Yeah. So all the time the witnesses are giving evidence, he's, he's making his own notes. And you think, is that in preparation going up for his own cross-examination? But he hasn't for the last two. He just makes the notes. Senega came to the UK from his native Indonesia on a student visa in 2007. Here, he started a course in sociology at the University of Manchester. He was raised as a Catholic by a conservative, well-off family who were thought to have funded his life here in Manchester. By the time he'd embarked on a PhD in human geography at the University of Leeds, he had developed a busy social life here in Manchester. He was welcomed by other students, housemates, and became an active member of a church, and even had part-time jobs in retail. He did go to, go to church. Uh, I think he, he, he did some voluntary work as well at the church. Um, but this is part of his perso- this is part of his persona. I think he's just assisted with um, under service, um, and I th- they might even had some classes where he just assisted uh, with, with teaching. But again, this is what he he sees himself as being openly gay. He liked the fact that the church accepted him as an openly gay man, and as also being foreign as well. So it was just him acclimatizing himself, and he talks about this in, in his dissertations as well. Um, so for the same reason he was out in, in the gay village and in the community and everything else just he just enjoyed being in the UK and in Manchester where he's accepted as a gay man because he's come from and he, again he discusses this with his friends from Indonesia which is a very conservative uh, country his parents didn't approve of him uh, of his uh, sexuality either he's continued with his uh, studies to remain in Manchester he did not want to go back so he just saw a way of extending his stay here because he, he was so comfortable with being openly gay. 
although knowing what I know about him now, I also believe it's, it, it, it was allowed to us, it, it, was, it was to enable him to continue offending as well. It was while living at Montana House on Princess Street that Senega began his campaign of rape. And though he has been prosecuted for crimes against 48 men, detectives say the true number of victims is around 195. I've been prosecuting over 30 years, uh, and in my experience, this is a complete one-off. Um, as far as we can tell, he is the most prolific rapist ever to go through uh, our courts in this country, possibly worldwide. Um, so totally, and, and I've never known a case of any type where the victims were completely unaware of what they'd been subjected to. Anyone who's seen Senega can confirm that he's an unremarkable looking man. He's about five foot six, slim, with glasses and relatively youthful looks. And it was his appearance that police say lulled his victims into a false sense of security. They could have no idea that behind his smiley, friendly exterior lay a cold, cunning and calculating sexual predator. It's feasible that Senega, who became more arrogant with each attack, may have thought he could carry on like this forever. But Senega's world came crashing down on June the 2nd, 2017, when he was finally found out. D.I. Ali takes up the story here and explains how the rapist met his last victim. So he's out on a night out with his, um, with his friends, becomes separated. Uh, this is on the 2nd of June, um, early hours. And he ends up walking towards uh, Montana House on Princess Street. And as he approaches Montana House, Sinaga comes out of his apartment, approaches victim one, and engages in a short conversation. And he almost starts talking about university almost immediately. Victim one was of that, of that age group where he was likely to be a student. And within 15 minutes, he convinces him to come back to his apartment for another drink. Um, and need to add here, victim one, he, he already had a number of um, drinks by this stage, so he was intoxicated. Um, from his account, it didn't see uh, Sinaga as a threat at all. It just, it just seemed someone was quite friendly, and they thought, "Yeah, why not? You're offering me another drink, and yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take up on that offer." Once he's in this apartment, he remembers being offered a, uh, an alcoholic drink, um, and then not long after, he's, he's got no memory until he wakes up, and what he describes as he thought he was about to be raped, and he manages to break free, he picks up his mobile phone, what he believes to be his mobile phone, and tries to leave. Now, Sinaga at this stage gets involved in a struggle to get that phone off him, because it's actually his phone, what he's been recording the fence on. And as you can imagine, he's quite keen to make sure that doesn't leave the apartment. They are now involved in a very violent struggle. Uh, Victim 1 is athletic, well-built, so able to look after himself, and as as mentioned earlier on, Sinaga is quite petite and smaller. Um, so he ends up receiving a number of injuries, Sinaga does, as does the victim one. Um, Sinaga actually bites him, and he, d- he does have a, a bite mark. Um, and at the end of it, victim one leaves the apartment, and then on his way down, he contacts the police. And that was at 0551 hours, when we received the report from victim one. And what he says is, someone's held me against, the w- against my will in an apartment, and he was trying to rape me. So the officers arrive at... 06 or one hours, so within 10 minutes they arrive. Victim one is still within the apartment, but he's, he's, he's 
it's downstairs near near near, near the uh, front door. So he remains there. He explains to the officers what has happened, but he also mentions concern for the offender's uh, welfare. And he says, "We had to get into fight. He is injured." So the officers go upstairs to see him um, as a suspect, but also in terms of to, to see what of his injuries are and what they're faced with is Sonaga's in the uh, foyer bit inside his in his apartment in his in his flat. He's on the floor, semi-unconscious, with a lot of blood coming out of his head. An ambulance is called, but also at that time the police made a decision to arrest victim one on suspicion of Section 18 assault because of what they were faced with in terms of the severe injuries. Officers went upstairs and were faced with the gory scene of a bloodied and beaten Senega who had to be stretched out of his flat by paramedics. He was being treated as a victim. Now, when he was fit enough to be spoken to, he was, he was concerned uh, mainly about his mobile phone Repeatedly kept asking it on the officers. Um, quite like I said, yeah, let us know where it is and we'll go get it free. So he mentioned that it'll probably be under his bed uh, or on the floor in his apartment. So the officers go uh, bring the mobile phone back, which was an, an iPhone. And also because it, mobile phones are generic, no screen distinguishing marks, quite right, they asked him, just confirm your PIN code so we know it's yours. Um, and he provides the wrong PIN number on a number of occasions, which heightens the suspicion of the officers. And they, they persist until he finally gave, provides the, hey, the, um, the right PIN number. And because they now become suspicious about him giving the wrong number, when it opens up, it opens to a, a video. They press play, watch 10 to 15 seconds of it, and it's the video of victim one being sexually assaulted. And it just shows his um, depravity and his predatory skill, his predatory behaviour as well, and the planning that goes into his, um, his, his offending as well. And because he was disturbed, because obviously the victim one wakes up, it, it it's not a chance to stop the video footage or delete or anything along those lines. So at 15.52 hours on the 3rd of June 2017, he is arrested for rape. Now in the meantime, we've, uh, we've conducted house searches um, at, at his apartment. And there were a number of items that were seized but one of the things that initially led us to believe that he may quite early on that we thought he's, he'll be responsible for more than one rape is there were a number of um, ID documents that were found near his bed belonging to different people so that neither him nor victim one there was some clothing with ID documents again not linked to either him or victim one at this stage we th- we had him down as potentially offending against about six, seven, eight different people. But we certainly did think potentially we might have a serial rapist that we'll be investigating. Police were able to identify victims from various ID documents found in Senega's flat and from Facebook profiles the trophy rapist had kept on his mobile phone and hard drives. At the time, I was... Um, I was a DI, Detective Inspector of uh, the, uh, the Forces Serious Sexual Offences Unit, so we were very much the force rape unit, for, for, for a better phrase, and in one time I could have been investigating 300 rape crimes. And despite being the, the force specialist, it was a shock in terms of the amount of, the, the, the number of rapes that he was suspected of committing, but also the evidence. I've never come across anyone recording so graphically their, their offending. So it's not just the volume, it's, it's the method and, and, and how he's doing. But identifying them was only the beginning. Detectives now needed to approach each individual victim to tell them their suspicions. 
DC Orr disclosed to two victims. The first one I did, I suppose it's quite embarrassing, I've been a cop for so long, but the fact the first one I did, you're talking and it's such nice lads, you know what I mean? I've got lads that age, they're just nice lads, you're chatting away and you're like, the minute I say this next sentence, I'm going to end your, your life as you know it. It's not going to be the same ever again. So you get into that, like a bit of a chat to chat and you don't want to say the words. You've got to do it, obviously. But you sort of try and have that neutral sort of chat first. And you just know, you just, you're like, do they really have to know this, you know? Because he doesn't, he could have gone through the rest of his life without knowing, couldn't he? But no, I'm going to now tell you. Because of the sheer number of victims in this case, it had to be split into four separate trials. Police also expected many more men to come forward after Senega's name and what he had done became public. So the court passed a temporary order, banning the press from reporting Senega's case. It meant he was guaranteed a fair trial each time. Police and prosecutors also believed that if the media were to report details from ongoing trials, it may have deterred potential victims or witnesses from coming forward to report the crimes or from giving evidence in court. Police needed to protect not just the victims they knew about, but those they didn't. It would have been significantly more difficult, there's no doubt about that, whether we would have got, been able to ensure a fair trial process, um, because I suppose the alternative would have been one massive trial that would have lasted an, you know, an enormous length of time, um, been not so easily explained to jurors, um, I think that would have been uh, almost certainly logistically impossible. In total, 48 of Senega's victims gave evidence in court. When it came to Senega himself taking to the witness box, he gave evidence in trial 1 and trial 4, but declined in trials 2 and 3. It was during his fourth trial that the rapist appeared perhaps the most flustered. Up until then, he had sat quietly in the dock, flanked by three officers, studiously taking notes. Back in May 2018, when he first gave evidence, there was barely anyone in court apart from the judge, jurors and court staff. But when he came to give evidence in his fourth and final trial, in December 2019, he had a far bigger audience. The press bench was almost full of reporters. We were all keen to see how Senega would explain his actions in the face of such overwhelming evidence against him. His defence team asked that he wasn't handcuffed while giving evidence. That's because the fourth jury knew nothing of his previous trials. So Senega appeared in the witness box, flanked by three dock officers. He's a slight man, around five foot six or seven in height, with round glasses, brown eyes and long, jet black hair. He wore a grey jumper, rolled up at the sleeves, a watch and stonewashed jeans. He spoke with a slight accent and leaned forward to direct his answers into the microphone. Senega told his defence barrister, Richard Little Accusi, that he is flamboyant and wants people to know he is gay when he goes out. He said, First, it's okay to be gay, that's me. And second, I enjoy sex so it makes clear to other partners that I am gay and they get the message straight away. His, his defence through all the trials um, has remained uh, the same, which is he's openly gay. He will go on um, around Manchester to the nightclubs to drink and also f- to, um, for sexual liaisons to, to meet men for sex. Um, and he believes because he's so attractive and in feminine men will 
approach him for sex and he believes he's particularly uh, attracted by bisexual or bi curious men um, and he always takes them up on their offer when they get back to his apartment his defense is that they agree to what to sexual consensual sexual acts so he'll do anything they want and his own fantasy is that they would role play of not moving pretending to be asleep and they're aware that he's video recorded the uh, the sexual act on the basis that he doesn't share it with anyone. By this point, Senega's hair was long, falling well past his shoulders. But this wasn't the case when he had met and attacked his victims. Back then, he kept it cropped pretty short, with a fringe that he dyed a blondie gingery tint. He told the court during his evidence, For some, I may look like a ladyboy. It seems very popular among some curious men who are looking for a gay experience. But Ian Simkin, the prosecutor, disagreed. He told Senega, But you look like a man. The rapist replied, Well, it's your opinion, but some people think that I look like a female. It's an objective opinion. It was at this point that Senega started to become agitated. When Mr Simkin asked him to explain the videos which clearly showed his victims asleep, Senega said, It's a sexual fantasy. Just because it looks weird and Fifty Shades of Grey weird sex fantasy, it happens whether we know that or not. Senega denied ever possessing or buying drugs to put people to sleep. Instead, he insisted, they may have regretted it, or were all embarrassed or ashamed, or maybe they wanted to try and save their relationship. There are many other reasons, as well, why they deny, but when on the night we did it, they agreed, and they knew what was happening. To say it's a weak defence is probably putting it politely, because what we have for each trial, because obviously the, the, the jury can only look at that, that trial, so for each trial, whether we've had 12 victims or 10 or 13, we've had... 12 people with no links to each other, so 12 victims, don't know each other, never met each other before, all providing the same consistent account of how they met him, what their memory is, and how they felt the next day. And not one of them mentioned any knowledge of, of being video recorded, of any consensual sex. And what's, where his story really falls down is we actually, ha- uh, some of the victims are gay, openly gay as well. So they have no reason to to lie about any sexual encounter and and then when you start watching the videos and there's hundreds of hours of these videos and of all, of all these victims they are clearly not engaging you can see they're not aroused you can clearly hear they're asleep because they're, they're snoring and if they were acting they'd be in Hollywood you know, they, they, they deserve Oscars It was of course a ludicrous defence and each and every juror at each of Sinega's four trials saw through his lies and found him guilty on all counts. In total, Sinega was found guilty of 136 rapes, 8 attempted rapes, 13 sexual assaults, and 2 counts of assault by penetration. He is the most prolific rapist in British judicial history. Judge Goddard said she does not believe he will ever be safe to be released from custody. She told Sinega, You are an evil serial sexual predator who has preyed upon young men who, for the most part, came into the city centre wanting nothing more than a good night out with their friends. One of your victims described you in his victim personal statement as a monster. The scale and enormity of your offending establishes that is an accurate description. Prosecutors had hoped the judge might pass a whole life term. This would have been unprecedented in a non-homicide rape case. 
but the Attorney General, Geoffrey Cox, has now asked the Court of Appeal to decide if the sentence is too lenient. The effect of Senega's crimes on his victims can't be underestimated. Some have kept the details of their abuse entirely to themselves. Others have confided in parents, girlfriends or mates. One victim was so devastated to find out he'd been raped that he tried to kill himself on Christmas Day. Another was terrified nobody would believe him and that Senega would walk free. And one victim, who uses a stoma for Crohn's disease, was so disturbed to find out he'd been raped three times that he asked doctors to remove his colon. In a victim impact statement, one of the men said, It crushed me. How could you be so stupid? Me leaving the club and ending up in someone's flat was so out of character. I don't deserve this. It's the first thing I think about in the morning and the last thing I think of at night. He hit rock bottom when someone made a comment about the attack. That night, he attempted suicide and ended up in hospital. I remember my mum crying all night. I have never been in such a bad place in all my life. This has been the worst two years of my life. Another lad explained how he couldn't even fathom that Senega was a predator. I was happy to go back to his place for a few drinks. Never ever did I think he had this evil plot to abuse me that night. I will never forget the day police contacted me. I never thought it was to tell me I had been a victim of a sexual crime. I could not stop thinking about that night. I live in a small town where people know each other and I'm really worried people will find out about me. I want Senega to accept what he has done to me. Another of Senega's victims, a soldier, said the most profound consequence is how others perceive your reaction. I lived on the mantra that because I was unaware of the crime until two and a half years later, it had not changed me at all. I have tried, I believe successfully, to not let myself be characterised as someone who has been raped. That doesn't stop others seeing me as such. Another describes Senega as an evil predator who has robbed him of his future. It could not get any worse if someone was to knife or stab me. I told my mum and she was physically sick. Duncan Craig is Chief Executive of Survivors Manchester. It's a charity that deals exclusively with male victims of rape and sexual abuse. Duncan and his team have been at the forefront of victim support in a number of high-profile cases. They advised soap writers on Hollyoaks and Coronation Street when they wrote about the subject. Duncan can empathise with Senega's victims because he himself is a survivor of sexual abuse. He was asked by Greater Manchester Police to coordinate the victim approach in this case. What's so unique about this case is, first of all, the the size of it, the, the gravity of it. I think what's shocking to people is the gravity plus the fact that all of the victims are male. So Survivors Manchester has been working with male victims of sexual violence for 10 years now. So it's not a new thing to us, but I think it's more new to and, and unique to the world at, at large. One of the things that we did very, very early on in the, uh, in the planning of the investigation was to make sure that when the police were going to each of the victims uh, for the, their kind of the first point of contact, that we had a crisis worker with them. We had a trained, qualified mental health person who was there to make sure that when someone got this news, when somebody 
may have remembered something or that there's someone there, one of the crisis workers from the from St Mary's is there to really help that person. And I think that's probably the most unique aspect of this case. That's never been done before. Duncan says he has no doubt that Manchester is a safe city in the most part. What he hopes is that the case breaks down the stigma around male rape and makes people more aware of personal safety. As a survivor of sexual abuse... I am the last person that's going to stand there and blame victims. There is never a need to blame victims. The only person that's ever to blame in sexual abuse cases and in rape and assault cases is the person who committed the act. That's, that's easy to deal with as far as I'm concerned. Nobody puts themselves in a situation to be raped. Nobody puts themselves in a situation to be, to be assaulted and to be abused. What we do have to think, though, about is... How do we talk to each other about keeping each other safe? And that's things like taxis, making sure that we go into taxi ranks, that we know where the street angels are, that pubs and clubs are looking at, are we still serving highly intoxicated people? Now, there's laws and there's policies Maybe we need to look at what, what are the things that we should be doing and then maybe follow them before we start introducing new things, before we start introducing new laws and new policies. If you or anyone you know have been affected by Senega's crimes, you can call police on 101 or go on the website, the Major Incident Public Portal. Details of counselling and support for victims of male rape is available on the Manchester Evening News website. Manchester's had more than its fair share of trauma um, and we've bounced back and we will, we'll bounce back from this. We'll, we'll be a stronger city, we'll be a more sturdy and stable and resilient city. But what I love about Manchester the most is that Manchester looks after its own and this, without a doubt, this is a case where Manchester is standing with these men.